I felt like I hit the flu times 10. I've lost 13 kgs. My memory's been terrible. And then I started to have bumps show up within the entire space of my mouth. I decided to go get a check up from the doctor and found out five days later that I had contracted HIV. Kia ora, I'm Emile Donovan, and today on The Detail, more than four decades since it came to global attention in the 1980s, HIV is still infecting people around the world, including here in Aotearoa. But efforts to eradicate it are looking effective. The number of people first diagnosed with HIV in New Zealand last year is the lowest since the late 1990s. This news comes just five years after New Zealand's HIV nadir in 2016. A record 244 people were diagnosed with HIV in 2016, 20 more than the year before that, and the most since records began more than 30 years ago. With the AIDS Foundation setting an ambitious target of no new HIV transmissions in Aotearoa by 2025, what are the measures and interventions that have been so successful over the past five years? And with the National Drug Buying Agency getting a funding increase... Pharmac's been given its biggest ever budget allowance, $191 million. Could treatments be expanded in the near future? Pharmax issued three consultations. If successful, 15 new medications would become available from the 1st of July for conditions like cancer, multiple sclerosis and HIV. Dr Peter Saxton is an Associate Professor at the University of Auckland, Director of the Gay Men's Sexual Health Research Group and a member of Otago University's AIDS Epidemiology Group. I began by asking him to describe what HIV actually is. Sure, well HIV is a virus, so it stands for Human Immunodeficiency Virus, and I guess um, it does exactly that. So when it enters the body, it gradually degrades someone's immune system to the point where they're susceptible to opportunistic infections. But there are a couple of things that are really important here. First of all, it's actually a really um, inefficiently transmitted virus, so it's not like COVID or other viruses we might be familiar with. In fact, you can only acquire HIV in, in very specific ways. And those tend to be through um, sexual intercourse, penetrative sexual intercourse, through blood transfusion, sharing needles, or through pregnancy. So it's actually very specific. And even then, the probability of, of transmission occurring is actually quite low. I think a lot of people are quite mistaken when I actually asked my population health students mm. how efficient they think transmission is. People generally overestimate it. In fact, we know that for sexual intercourse, the average act only carries about a 1% or less probability of transmission. We've actually known this for a long time. Here's Hugh Gore, General Secretary of the National Gay Rights Coalition, speaking way back in 1984. One of the few things that has been um, more or less proved about AIDS is that it is, is extremely difficult to contract it. Um, once you've got it, the mortality rate is high, but it is in fact extremely difficult to get. But the key thing is here, um, that can be a lot higher if someone's in the early phase of transmission. So if someone's recently acquired HIV, what we call the acute phase, which can last from a few weeks to a few months, 
they're probably 26 times more likely to be infectious to someone else. That is absolutely fascinating because I, even up until talking to you about this, was kind of under the impression, I had it in my mind that HIV was one of those things where if you have sex with someone who is HIV positive, you're going to get HIV. Yeah, and, and look, I think, you know, HIV has, has a frightening history and I think we've imported some of that history um, from the 1980s when there was a lot of fear, a lot of uncertainty. It had come suddenly and seemingly from out of nowhere. Its origins were shrouded in mystery, its causes and symptoms baffling. It was a physically devastating disease, incurable and frighteningly deadly. But, you know, the, the science is really clear that, in fact, it's, it's quite an inefficiently transmitted virus, which is a good thing. It means that, you know, by and large, with the right risk reduction practices, you know, we can absolutely control transmission, not just between individuals, but also across communities. Is HIV different to AIDS? It is. It's obviously um, describes the virus. And so if someone's living with undiagnosed, untreated HIV, then after a number of years, and that could be from 8 to, to, to 12 years, their immune system degrades to the point where they're more susceptible to infections. And when someone's measure of their immune system um, gets so low, um, we then describe them as, as, as having AIDS. So we can formally describe that in terms of someone's CD4 count. When someone's first diagnosed with HIV, they might have a CD4 count of uh, above 500, which means that they're probably quite recently infected. When it gets down to below 200, that's the point where we say actually someone's been living with HIV for a long time, they may well have AIDS, and there's a high likelihood that um, something terrible is going to happen to their health if they're not um, given treatment soon. Okay, so HIV left untreated for a long time, which leads to a pretty catastrophic erosion of one's immune system. That leads to AIDS. Absolutely, and that's why... You know, we emphasise early testing and diagnosis so much because of all the advantages of the new HIV treatment. So, you know, for the first couple of decades, there wasn't an awful lot that we could offer people living with with diagnosed HIV. And so often that meant that there wasn't um, a high incentive for people to get tested. Of course, there was a lot of stigma as well. Mm-hmm. But, but everything has changed now. So we now know that if someone is living with HIV and they're diagnosed early in the course of, of their infection, they're offered treatment, that treatment is effective, it will suppress the virus um, circulating in their body or eliminate it completely. But it will suppress it to, to such a low extent that they can live a full and normal life, so the same lifespan as anybody else, and also key is that they won't be able to transmit HIV to a sexual partner. So those are two brand new things, which means that you know it's absolutely essential that anyone who's been exposed to HIV um, seeks testing so they can have the opportunity to, to have um, treatment. When we look at the demographics of people who contract HIV, um, are there demographics that are more likely to contract this, this virus? And do we know anything about the factors or the reasons behind that? Look, what we do um, really clearly now, um, but going back to those early days of the 1980s, it must have been so frightening. Mm. You know, this was something that here in Aotearoa we saw emerge in, in the US then in the UK and Europe, then in Australia, we have the sense of it, it being inevitable that it will arrive here. And we weren't sure what form that would take. Um, what's really clear now is that the populations most affected do vary around the world, but they tend um, in countries like ourselves to, to be focused in certain populations. Um, and here that, that's focused in um, men who have sex with men or gay and bisexual men, people who inject drugs, sex workers, 
and people with higher than average sexual partners who may have had sex in parts of the world where HIV is more common. That would be the picture that, that a lot of countries would be expecting. But it's important to recognise that in, in, the, in the early 1980s, when we were watching this unfolding, New, New Zealand did something really remarkable. It actually acted early. Mm. So first of all, we saw mobilisation in those key communities. So activists, advocates and their allies started gathering information and, and raising awareness. The AIDS Support Network was established by a man called Bruce Burnett and he travelled around New Zealand basically as a one-man roadshow. In a country like New Zealand where sexual activity is not talked about very freely or with much ease um, and when you're dealing with things like homosexuality that is even less at ease, when you're dealing with a country where you can't even educate young people in schools about sex or, or, or sexually transmitted disease in case you put ideas into their head, um, it makes it very difficult. Um, the government really wisely invested um, a small amount of resource for those groups and put them in charge of the response so they could design you know, interventions that made sense for their communities. And then we set about a program of, of dismantling all those obstacles, including stigma, that could get in the way of people having safe sex or injecting safely. And so those included things like um, homosexual law reform in 86. In the past, we have been easily silenced and we have been made invisible. Tonight we are saying we have had enough. Um, the decriminalisation of needles and syringes in 87. Um, so New Zealand was one of the first countries in the world to have a publicly funded needle exchange programme. Here's the then Health Minister Michael Bassett speaking in 1987. Don't inject, seek treatment... But if you do inject, never share needles. Buy your own. We um, reformed human rights in, in, in 1993. And, of course, there we decriminalised sex work in, in 2003. So that package of, of, of early responses really sets um, Aotearoa apart from other countries. And what it meant was is that by helping most affected communities protect themselves, it also protected the wider society. Mm. So by the mid-1990s, although there were really quite awful predictions of what our epidemic could have looked like, we had one of the lowest per capita um, rates of HIV in, in the world. And, and many of those communities became champions of, of safe sex and, and maintained that for about 40 years. Yeah, well, let's talk a little bit about how um, New Zealand has dealt with, with HIV. I mean, I'm looking right now at a graphic the number of people diagnosed with HIV from 1985 to 2021. And as you say, it's a fascinating picture. Throughout the 1980s and the 1990s, we have a, a really quite a relatively low rate here, but it's in the early 2000s that cases of HIV start to shoot up in New Zealand, and particularly among heterosexual people. Is that a trend that we've done some research into? Yeah, it's, it's really important to, to interpret those graphs in a way that, appreciates that there are probably different waves of, of epidemics, that that's true for all infectious diseases, but also that there are probably sub-epidemics. When we look at um, our own epidemic chart, um, there was that early peak, but then that, that quickly declined, as you say, to the, the mid-1990s, and that represented all those good efforts in the first 10 years. So we knew that we could, um, we could regain control. Then from the mid-1990s, a couple of things happened. Um, first of all, Internet dating became, I guess, a thing. And, and also we had new treatments for HIV. So after, you know, 10 or 15 years, there were probably a, a number of factors, a bit of safe sex fatigue, maybe a, a bit less um, fear about HIV as a condition because of those treatments. Mm. 
but also new ways that, that people could meet up sexually, including internet dating apps and, and websites. So what we saw in, in Aotearoa, um, but also around the world, was from the late 1990s and early 2000s, um, new cases started to rise. And in fact, that continued in many countries. According to the UN AIDS office in PNG, latest statistics estimate that almost 47,000 people are infected with HIV in a country whose population is about 8 million. Um, and it continued in Aotearoa to the high point of 2016, yeah. so it, it kept on going up. A New Zealand-based representative of an international gay rights group says the rise in the number of people with HIV is alarming. A record 244 people were diagnosed with HIV last year. That's 20 more than the year before that and the most since records began more than 30 years ago. And I guess that just represents just how tricky these things are, which is, you know, in public health we talk about this, this being a marathon. Yes, we can see some early results, but, but you can't take the foot off the gas we need to make sure that these interventions that we know are evidence-based and that work keep on being applied um, and we keep on thinking about how we can improve risk environments and and making um, it safer for communities. You mentioned that the high point in, uh, well, (laughs) the highest number of cases in New Zealand, the peak of of HIV in New Zealand, it was in 2016. And uh, you've just come out with a a new piece of research pertaining to HIV in, in New Zealand in terms of 2021. Let's talk a bit about that research and what has sort of happened in that five-year period. So maybe first of all, we'll talk about the numbers from 2021. Um, Break it down for me. How many people uh, notified with with HIV in that year? Look, first of all, you know, we had one of the best records um, for 20 years. So that's an incredibly encouraging thing. From that that high point in 2016, the numbers are looking really low. Mm. And, And the number that I focus on is in fact the 29 cases amongst men who have sex with men. Because Mm. in New Zealand, we know that um, this community is disproportionately affected and most transmission occurs here. So if we're doing well in this community, we're going to be doing well um, as a country. So I think the first point to make is in terms of our own epidemiology, men who have sex with men account for over 70% of transmission that occurs within New Zealand, i.e. that's transmission we could control rather than that happens overseas. Um, And we know that um, men who have sex with men have about a 350 times more likelihood to acquire HIV than other groups in New Zealand. So we absolutely know that MSM um, are the group where, where transmission is most focused, and that's where we need to concentrate our prevention efforts. Um, but there are other groups, and, um, and I guess missing from those stats are ones that you see in other countries. First of all, people who inject drugs, because of those early interventions in the late 1980s, we have virtually no transmitted epidemic of HIV amongst people who inject drugs. That's a world-beating result. Um, I don't know of any other country who does better than us with, with, with this community. Also, sex workers. We really don't see sex workers acquiring HIV um, in New Zealand because, again, of that early progressive law reform. So some fantastic results there, again, that actually aren't represented in these stats. Um, In terms of heterosexual transmission, I guess over the the middle part of our epidemic, we saw a rise in cases. It's really important to point out that most of those cases represented um, HIV that was acquired overseas, Mm. um, largely in parts of the world, where HIV is more common, such as Saharan Africa. And so these represent people who have migrated to New Zealand and are now living in New Zealand um, diagnosed and on treatment. And because they're on treatment, um, they're not transmitting to to anybody else. So when we look at, um, I guess, the the latest results, we're really focused on transmission in New Zealand, 
um, and where that's occurring. It's still occurring at an MSM, but um, there's been an over 50% reduction in the last five years and certainly from 2016. That is astonishing. I mean, that is a, that is a public health achievement that you would shout from the rooftops about. Talk me through it then. So how did we do this? Was there anything special that we started to do in 2016 that has led to this downward trend? Is it simply a matter of, you know, we we had good fundamentals in place and so we had a plan to turn to when things started to get pretty bad? Talk me through how this kind of happened. Yeah, there was some some really important, um, I guess, revolutions in HIV prevention from 2015. And and what, what we... Um, describe this as, as as combination HIV prevention. So yes, it's continuing those things that we know have worked and kept transmission low for for you know three decades. That's things like condoms. It's things like testing. We need to keep those in place. But on top of that, we learned about two new things. First of all, those new treatments for people living with HIV. Um, some major studies came out that showed that people living um, with HIV that's that's treated and virally suppressed cannot transmit sexually to their partners. Mm-hmm. That was a that was a major development. Um, and the other thing was also using those um, same treatments for people who are more at risk of acquiring HIV, mm-hmm. and and that comes in the form of pre-exposure prophylaxis or or PrEP. PrEP essentially is a daily pill taken by HIV-negative people who are at high risk of HIV because for a range of legitimate reasons, they struggle with consistent condom use. And if they take the pill as prescribed, then it's highly effective at preventing the transmission of HIV. And when we look at jurisdictions overseas that have made PrEP widely available, we're seeing drastic falls in in new HIV infection numbers. Sydney, New South Wales, for example, recorded its lowest ever first half uh, of a year since the middle of the 1980s when HIV arrived. So we know that it can get the job done in the context of HIV. And basically that means that if, if someone's at risk of HIV, they're able to take a pill um, consistently and that will reduce the risk of them contracting HIV by up to 99%. So what we've done since 2016 in New Zealand, we rolled out uh, a small study in, in, in Auckland, first of all, about PrEP. And then from, I think, 2018, New Zealand became one of the first countries in the world to publicly fund PrEP to groups most at risk. We then had a situation of condom use, um, regular testing, treatments for people living with HIV and PrEP for people most at risk. And and that increased the sense of prevention coverage across the communities most at risk. So what we started to see is new diagnoses of HIV start to track down. And that's exactly what we would hope to see, but it also raises some questions. And I think first of them for me is, okay, that's great, Um, it looks like this is going in the right direction, but is prevention coverage high enough to get us to zero? Mm. That's the first question. And part of answering that is understanding, is there equity in that prevention coverage? So are there gaps um, in some communities who don't have as good access to those prevention tools as, as do other groups? And if that's true, we're not going to get to zero. PrEP is funded in three-month supplies, but among Pharmax requirements is that the patient must have had casual, unprotected male-to-male receptive sex in the previous three months. Doctors are also required to complete a special authority form. 
People qualifying for funded PrEP prescriptions only pay the cost of their doctor's appointment and possibly a $5 pharmacy charge for a three-month supply. But it can cost hundreds of dollars for those like Brandon Go, a Malaysian man who's been in New Zealand on a student visa for four years. He faced a bill of almost $600, but was able to halve that with the help of the New Zealand AIDS Foundation. So I think the, the key challenge for us now working in prevention and in epidemiology is working out where those gaps are and, and redesigning our, our um, prevention responses to make sure that we respond to them and help us get to zero. We can't keep having barriers for people to access PrEP. If people have the courage to ask for PrEP, there's a reason that they've got to that point. And if we put barriers in, then they won't come back and access it. There are a number of things that we can um, work on. One of them is, is awareness. One of them is, is access and making sure that when people access the health system, they're not faced with things that we talked about earlier, things like stigma. So first of all, we know that there's been a lot of disinvestment um, over the years. It really hasn't kept up with demand. We need to make sure that New Zealand has capacity to respond to these new challenges in the way we want to. That means funding our sexual health services properly. It means ensuring that in primary care, when people go to your, you know, a GP, that they won't be met with homophobia, they won't be met with judgmentalism, there won't be um, stigmatised responses to people disclosing being at risk of HIV. And it, it means we need to train our, our next generation of doctors to provide competent care to our rainbow communities. So there's a whole bunch of and sort of workforce development in there, but I guess it's also given us some new opportunities we never had before. I think of prevention from a network perspective, and I think it's really helpful to do this when we're talking about getting to zero, because it's going to be harder and harder to find where those gaps are. And what I meant by, by networks, it's sort of how people are connected sexually to each other. Mm. And what's really key here is thinking about those individuals who are highly connected to each other by virtue of their sexual partnering. What we need to see is those key strategic individuals either using condoms consistently or using PrEP or if they're, if they're living with HIV, that it's diagnosed, treated, and they're, they're not infectious to others. Mm. And if we can achieve that, it will effectively achieve a level of coverage across the network that will constrain the ability of HIV to transmit. It will essentially leave the virus with nowhere to go. And we start to see some threshold effects happening. So it's really critical because it means we don't need everyone to be engaging in safe sex but we need to get the most critical people to be engaged in safe sex. And now that includes PrEP. And what we've found when we've done studies is that PrEP is really appealing to people who struggle with condoms and who might be you know, more at risk of acquiring and transmitting HIV. Mm. So that's been, I think, the big shift. It's, it's, it's certainly acceptable to people. People are adherent to the pills. And it, it's given them a sense of freedom and, I guess, reduce the level of anxiety around acquiring HIV that has never been true for them before. That's it for today. I'm Emile Donovan. The detail is public interest journalism funded through New Zealand On Air and produced by Newsroom for RNZ. You can get us downloaded free to your mobile device every weekday from any podcast platform. And if you're using Apple, please leave us a rating so others can find us too. Today's episode was engineered by Jeremy Ansell and produced by Sarah Robson and Bonnie Harrison, and thanks to Dr. Peter Saxton. Matewa.